Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. A steep learning curve is what TV and stage actor Jim Parsons encountered in his latest venture. Richard Schlesinger will be telling us all about that. In Scotland, men wear kilts. Those are kind of like skirts. One of television's most successful actors has taken on a new challenge, starring in and producing his first film. Producing was fun? Yes, producing was very fun. Was it as much fun as acting? No, it's not as much fun as acting. The education of Jim Parsons, ahead on Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and more just ahead. A page from our Sunday morning almanac, June 10th, 1905, 113 years ago today. The day America's first forest fire lookout tower went into operation on top of Squaw Mountain in Maine, with 19-year-old William Hilton as its watchman. The first tower, but hardly the last. In the years that followed, their numbers multiplied on America's mountaintops, peaking, as it were, at more than 4,000 during the 1940s, when they also served as enemy aircraft lookouts during World War II. A ranger soon learns that he can't take things for granted. This is especially true when a fire breaks out on the district. This United States Forest Service video from the 1950s about ranger life shows the fire lookout towers in action. From our lookout on Eagle Mountain comes a report of a smoke at 210 degrees. The lookout on Echo Bluff radios the position of the smoke as 305 degrees from her tower. This can be a bad one. Of course, the job of forest fire lookout has long appealed to people seeking solitude. Believe it or not, back in the summer of 1956, the beat author, Jack Kerouac, worked as a lookout on a tower, one year before he published his classic, On the Road. These days, new technologies, including air patrols and computerized lightning detection systems, are taking their toll. Of the original 4,000 towers, only about 900 remain. But all is not lost. Volunteers are preserving many of the decommissioned towers. And some can even be booked by the adventurous for an overnight stay. The ultimate no frills, room with a view. Penny, Penny, <laughs> Penny. Good morning. Do you have any idea what time it is? Of course I do. My watch is linked to the atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> Jim Parsons plays the annoying nerd for laughs in the hit CBS TV series, The Big Bang Theory. Now, in a brand new film, Parsons plays very different roles, both in front of and behind the camera. Here's Richard Schlesinger. You said whoever had the bright idea to evaluate toddlers using test scores deserves a special place in hell. Out of a hundred? Yeah. There is a great deal about Jim Parsons' latest role in the new movie, A Kid Like Jake, 
that not so many years ago would have been difficult to imagine. This time, he's not just the star. I would chewed gum through that whole take. He is also one half of the husband and husband producing team behind the film that focuses on two parents, played by Parsons and Claire Danes, trying to find the right school for their four-year-old son, Jake, who likes to dress as a princess. I love to act. It's an insatiable desire of mine. I, I feel like I can't control it. Do you love to produce? No, I wouldn't say that yet. <laughs> this guy doesn't know how to tell me that my son was, uh, well, he was the Little Mermaid, it turns out. Parsons is known as an actor with a broad range. I'm sorry, honey, I'm meeting Amy and Bernadette for dinner. But you're welcome to tag along. A girl's night? Oh, I don't know if I'm up for an evening talking about rainbows, unicorns, and menstrual cramps. <laughs> he became an A-list star in the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory. He is also a stage actor, starring these days on Broadway in a revival of The Boys in the Band. And he's presenting an award at the Tonys tonight. This is his first role behind the camera as a producer. Where did you get the producer bug? Uh, I'm not sure that I have it still, but I'm doing it. There's been a bit of a learning curve. People generally don't like to talk about this, but what don't you know? What don't I know? Oh, I don't mind talking about what don't I know. I don't know, oh. I don't know all the things that one must consider when putting together a project. I'm learning them. Parsons was on location at a school last summer in Brooklyn, New York, when we first caught up with him. He and Claire Danes were shooting scenes not at all unfamiliar to her. I happen to be a mother of a four-year-old son living in New York City, and I had just gone through that process, that gauntlet of applying to elementary schools, which here is, um, you know, very intense. And it starts at age what? Oh, gosh. I mean, age negative. It's a little more difficult for Danes and Parsons' characters in the movie because their four-year-old, Jake, might be transgender. They seek help from their friend, a counselor, played by Octavia Spencer. But you know that I care very deeply about Jake, which is why I'm doing everything in my power to place him somewhere where he feels safe and comfortable enough to... To dress like a girl. Throughout the filming of this movie, Parsons was juggling his two roles as actor and boss. You know, there's a lot of feeling this out as I go, and there's a lot of relying on a lot of other people who do understand things better. One of the people he relied on was his producing partner and his life partner, his husband, Todd Spiewak. You spend time at home talking about the movie? We do. He runs out of the room every time I put the dailies on my computer. Not every time, but I don't need to see those. I don't need to see <laughs> playback of all the scenes we've done, not while we're in the middle of it. It's our job to harness every student's unique potential. <laughs> that wasn't awful. No. The film's director is Silas Howard. Let's wait till you cross past the woman's head. Howard brought an intensely personal perspective to this film. In Scotland, men wear kilts, which are kind of like skirts. 
Cut. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Gender issues are not just someone else's issues to Silas Howard. He was born female and transitioned in graduate school. For a kid right around five, six, seven, eight, they pretty much know who they are, kind of what they're going to do and if they're going to grow out of it. Um, I think the problem is never with the kids, it's sort of the world around them. Howard insisted the role of Jake had to come naturally to the young actor playing him. I wanted a, a little boy who loved being a princess. The part went to Leo James Davis. Little Leo has amazing looks, pulls the best fashions, um, is very clear on you know what he likes, has been that way since age two, he's fine. He'll wear boy clothes too, but he really loves you know wearing dresses and he does whatever. And his parents are so on board, they're super supportive. Howard's boss, Jim Parsons, is one of TV's highest paid actors and could have chosen pretty much any film as the first one he produced. He said this was the time to make this film, while there is a debate about who can use which bathroom and the role of transgender soldiers. I think it might be more important than ever, even if mostly what you want to do is act, to get your face and hands in there as early as you can to make sure that the stories you're interested in telling have a chance to be told. But Parsons and Claire Danes see themes in this film that go beyond whatever problems parents have if their kids might be transgender. It is especially emotional for Danes, who's expecting her second child. We all are told that our, our children should be special but not different, and those are, that's a very kind of confusing message to have. Suddenly these alarms sound, and... Um, Oh, God, I'm crying thinking about it because it's very moving. It's like, you know, just, you just, his parents want their kids to be safe. Sorry I made you cry. No, you? no, no. Also, I, I am pregnant. <laughs> so. Danes, who's an executive producer and star of Showtime's Homeland series, has already learned what Jim Parsons is now finding out. Producers and parents are not entirely unalike. Both go through some pain to create something they hope will be valuable. When we first met, you said you were just sort of learning as you go the role of producer. Yeah. So now that it's all done, how'd that all work out for you? Well, I would say within the first week that we wrapped, my first feeling was never again. I thought, well, that's done. Oh, I don't know if I'll do that again. And then as we kept moving on, I was like, yeah, I will because some of the things that I don't enjoy about it are worth going through to get to the parts that I love. Coming soon, Mobituaries, a podcast on matters of death and life from Mo Rocca. A little music may be just what the doctor ordered at some hospitals our Nancy Giles has visited. With his guitar case in hand, Kenley Mattis shows up for his usual gig in an unusual spot. Stage outfit in place, he's ready to greet some folks who can't get out much. You've heard of the Beatles, right? Yeah. <laughs> you see, at least once a week, Kenley Mattis puts on his best bedside manner for hospital patients. And all I have to do is think of her. 
there's so many different people I've played to. I've played to tens of thousands of people over the years. Myra Rays is a cancer patient on the bone marrow transplant floor at City of Hope Hospital in Southern California. It makes the day happier. It makes the day more hopeful. Music just makes everything better. Tonight's gonna be a good night. Mattis is part of an organization called Musicians on Call. Like doctors making rounds, the nonprofit group has been bringing musicians to hospitals all over the country for almost 20 years, including some big name musicians. Patients have been treated to their own private concerts by Nick Jonas and Pharrell Williams. Country fans have hung out with Keith Urban if you got a kiss and Kelsey Ballerini. Musicians on Call has played for more than 600,000 patients. It's a person-to-person -person experience. It was amazing. One that Kenley Mattis finds more rewarding than the arenas and clubs where he started his career. There's so much about being an artist or being a performer, you wonder, is what I'm doing important? You know, is this about me? What is this about? You know, why do I want to do this? And then you do this, say, oh yeah, I could be there for other people. Do you have any requests? Is there anything in particular you want to hear? You know any Deep Purple? <laughs> As Mattis and I continued our rounds at City of Hope, we stopped into Vernon Davis's room. Right. The environment may be sterile, but Mattis is infectious. I see you singing. Come on. Come on, baby, like my fire. Even the mess-ups are cool because it's really about being them. Oh, I messed that up. You know this part. You know you want to sing with me. Oh, you know it. Well, just that. When they're happy, we're happy. Karen St. Ange is a nursing assistant at City of Hope. We crack doors, you know, people that don't really want to come out so that they know that they can hear the music and it still makes them happy. I, I'm so thankful, I don't know what to say. Ah, oh, you well, said it. I can't walk into a room and change someone's day. But as a musician, they could walk in and play a song and three minutes later, that person's day is forever changed. I watched that happen. Pete Griffin is the president of Musicians On Call. In the beginning, we were knocking on doors saying, hey, this is valuable, this is important. And then what we've seen over the past 20 years is that the science has really caught up to what we're doing. And now the hospital is saying, well, this is actually part of the healing process. Yes. This isn't something that's just a nice thing to do, but this is actually helping our patients. We know that music makes people less anxious. Professor Matthew Lascalzo is a specialist in pain management at City of Hope. We know that people who listen to music and experience it deeply feel less pain. Mm. That is science. We know that with music, you feel less depressed. Don't you know you feel more energized. You feel more connected to something bigger than your immediate experience. And isn't that what we all need? Oh, this is where all the work happens here. Thanks for having us. We Thank tagged you. along with country superstar Luke Bryan as he visited Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. He says it's not just about the patients. Trust me, I get in the habit of, uh, of being all about me from time to time. So whenever I can make it not about me and make it about nice somebody you. else. You doing good? Yes. And put them first. I think it does your body good. Brian's body of work can get a little racy at times. Which can create an issue. All my songs aren't nursery rhymes, so uh, 
when I have to play them for kids, I'll I'll do a little editing on the spot for them. Back at City of Hope, a nursery rhyme turned out to be just what the doctor ordered, and Kenley Mattis was ready. Two-year-old Christopher Leake is a natural-born percussionist. You've been practicing, right? You've been practicing the tambourine? Yeah. yeah. So Mattis created a song on the spot. Shaky avocado, shaky avocado, yeah. But usually it's just whatever's off the top of my, and then let's make up a song. Or, right. Which is sort of the go-to if you have no idea what to do. Well, I guess you say. Mattis had one last appointment on this day. He visited Johnice Victor and her husband Isaac, delivering a bit of healing and hope. I feel like I'm walking out of here now. <laughs> I know, you know, it I feel like it's time to go home. I'm telling you. <laughs> Reminds us of uh, that dance floor, so now we're oh. looking forward to getting back to it. I love it. Of <laughs> let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it Before there were podcasts, there was television. Remember? See what's new under the sun every Sunday morning. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning 